0: Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cusino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Last week we finally finished up the book of Revelation. And we actually started reading the book of Matthew last week in the reading plan. But we didn't get to it quite yet. We didn't introduce it yet because we were busy wrapping up the book of Revelation. So we want to do that this week. We want to introduce the gospel of Matthew and cover a few things in the first eight chapters or so of the book. And by the way, this is our last book of the New Testament. So, so far we've covered 26 out of 27 of the New Testament books. So this is the very last one. So to start things off, a quick intro to Matthew. Matthew, like the other Gospels, is technically an anonymous book since the author doesn't identify himself in the same way that Paul does or Peter does in their letters. But every Greek manuscript that we have has the header according to Matthew. So we don't have any anonymous copies of Matthew. So the the manuscripts all point to this being written by Matthew. And early church history is unanimous in attributing this book to Matthew, who is the former tax collector who followed Jesus and became one of his 12 disciples. Now, a couple interesting things to to think about here. As a tax collector, Matthew would have had training in scribal techniques, which means that he could write and he was skilled in assembling materials into one place. And we see that skillful organization in this gospel. The organization of this gospel matches with the skill set we would expect a scribe, a skilled scribe to have. And also, this is the only gospel to mention Jesus paying the temple tax, which, if you think about it, makes sense that a former tax collector would highlight that story. So the internal evidence of the book matches with the external evidence that Matthew, the tax collector, is the author of this gospel. Now, a couple things to note about Matthew. He's also referred to as Levi at times, especially in other gospels. So why two names? Well, it's possible that he could have possessed two names from birth. That was common in the ancient world to have two names. People would sometimes have a Hebrew name and a Greek name. Or he could have taken the name Matthew after becoming a follower of Jesus after his conversion. We don't know for sure. But just know that references to Levi in the Gospels refer to the same person. We also know that he's Jewish. Levi is an Old Testament name, of course, as one of the tribes of Israel, one of the 12 tribes. But as a tax collector, Matthew probably wasn't well-liked by the Jews for a couple reasons. First, at this time in the first century, the Roman Empire, remember, they are in control of this entire region, including over Palestine, including over the Jewish people. And so being a tax collector as a Jewish person meant that you had to cooperate with Rome. You were sympathetic toward the Roman Empire. You were working for the bad guys, so to speak. It would be like if somebody invaded the U.S. and took over control of our country, and then you started working for the new government. You're probably not going to be very popular. That's the position that Matthew's in. And On top of that, tax collectors usually made their living by charging people extra and then scraping off the top. They would keep money for themselves. So again, Matthew is probably not super well liked, but Jesus approaches him while he's in his tax booth, while he's working, and Matthew leaves everything behind and follows him. So just want to make the quick point here that if we were trying to assemble a dream team of disciples, right? If we were trying to assemble our 12 disciples, best disciples to follow Jesus and change the world, Matthew probably wouldn't have made the cut. But Jesus can use anyone. He often uses the least of these for his kingdom. Jesus doesn't use our criteria when he picks people. So what else do we know about Matthew? We know that he was probably fairly wealthy as a tax collector. He invites Jesus over to his house for a party right after he starts following Jesus. He invites Jesus over. There are tax collectors there and sinners there. This makes the Pharisees really upset. They say, why is Jesus hanging out with these people? So we know from that little episode that Matthew had a home. A couple other things to know here about Matthew. Since he was Jewish he is especially writing for a Jewish audience. And because of that, he quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel. Because remember, the Old Testament is the scripture of the Jews. So Matthew is trying to show his people that Jesus is the Messiah predicted and foreshadowed by the Old Testament. So you're going to see a lot of things like, this fulfilled what was written in the prophets or, or similar statements like that. You're going to see a lot of Old Testament quotes here. And Matthew also mentions a lot of Jewish customs like fasting and ritual washing and the temple tax and whitewashed tombs. And he doesn't really feel the need to explain these things. Why? Because his audience would have already been familiar with them. But that doesn't mean that he writes only for Jews. What he's really doing is he's equipping his Jewish audience to embrace the mission of making disciples of all nations. So he's calling the Jews to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and to take his gospel to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are included in his message as well. Now, as far as a a general structure of this book, after Jesus' birth and preparation for ministry, you're going to see five major discourses. And that just means five large sections of teaching in this book. So there are five major sections of teaching interspersed with Jesus' actions leading up to his death and resurrection. So Matthew contains the largest portion of Jesus' teachings out of all the Gospels. And remember that Matthew's goal is to bring people to faith and to summon them to make disciples of all nations. That's why you're going to see a lot of teaching here. This is a great book for discipleship, for helping people grow in their knowledge of Christ. So let's let's dive into the book and let's start right at the beginning with the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I know to us, genealogies can seem boring. right? They're just a long list of names. But to Matthew's ancient audience this is packed full of meaning here so Matthew starts by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David the son of Abraham and there's already so much significance here so Matthew first traces Jesus's line back to David and remember in 2 Samuel 7 God promised David that he would establish the throne of his offspring's kingdom forever So Matthew's showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. He is the true king who will restore Israel and reign forever. Now, one other interesting thing here related to David, verse 17 says there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile from Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Now, Matthew does skip some people in his genealogy. Scholars know this, and that wasn't uncommon in the ancient world for for them to skip certain people or certain generations for various reasons. But Matthew here, he's very intentionally structuring this genealogy in terms of 14, three sets of 14, why? Well, maybe it was for ease of memorizing, maybe it was just for literary symmetry, but I think what's more likely is that Matthew is telling us something here. This is symbolic. See, there's an ancient Jewish practice called gematria where they assign a numeric value to different Hebrew letters. So they, they assign a numeric value to the consonants in a Hebrew word. So if you take the letters in David's name and you add up the numbers, guess what number you get? 14. And on top of that, Guess where David is in this list? He's the 14th name. So there's some very clear symbolism here. Matthew is telling us in multiple ways that Jesus is the true Davidic king. He's the fulfillment of the promises made to David hundreds of years before. So I just think that's that's pretty cool. It's something that can be easy to gloss over if you're not looking for it. But Scripture is just packed full. Of meaning if we're willing to dig into it now Matthew also traces Jesus's line back to Abraham because remember God made promises to Abraham as well way back in the book of Genesis God graciously chooses Abraham and promises that he will bring a worldwide blessing through his offspring well who's Abraham's offspring Jesus so there's already so much meaning in this genealogy. Just one verse in, Matthew's telling us that Jesus fulfills the promises made to David and to Abraham, the father of the Israelite people. So keep in mind how significant this would have been to Matthew's Jewish audience, who is very familiar with the Old Testament. He's helping them see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's not opposed to to Jewish beliefs. He's the fulfillment of them. So Matthew is helping his Jewish audience here. And if you compare Matthew's genealogy to Luke's, Luke takes his genealogy all the way back to Adam because Luke is really emphasizing Jesus as the Savior of all people. But Matthew traces his genealogy back to Abraham because he's especially writing for a Jewish audience. But then Matthew makes a surprising move in his genealogy. He actually includes four women, and that was not common at all in ancient times because descent was traced through men as the head of the family. But Matthew includes four women here. And first you have Tamar, who was the the daughter-in-law of Judah way back in the book of Genesis. This is Genesis 38, you can read about it. She was most likely a Canaanite and she was the one who pretended to be a prostitute to shame her father-in-law Judah and she became pregnant by him. Then the next woman in the genealogy is Rahab. Remember, she was a prostitute in the city of Jericho and she was the one who hid Israelite spies and she helped them escape. Then you have Ruth, who was a Moabite woman, and she became part of Israel when she married Boaz. You can read about that in the book of Ruth, of course. And then last is Bathsheba, or as Matthew calls her, the wife of Uriah. She was the one that David lusted after. and He took her for himself, and she ultimately became the mother of Solomon. So there are a couple of common themes with these four women. First is a connection to the Gentiles because Ruth and Rahab were for sure foreigners. Tamar was also likely a foreigner, a Canaanite. So you have three out of four right off the bat are not Israelite women. And then Bathsheba was at least married to a foreigner, Uriah the Hittite. So this would probably have been surprising to Matthew's audience to see not only women, but so many foreigners included in Jesus' line in his descent. But Matthew's showing us that Jesus is bringing redemption to all people, all nations, not just the Israelites. God has always intended to bring the Gentiles to himself. And there's a second theme here with these four women, and that's sexual sin. Tamar pretended to be a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. And then you have Bathsheba, who was involved with David's sexual sins. So here's the reality. Matthew is showing us that Jesus came from a line of sinners. He's showing us that Jesus is coming to redeem all that is broken with humanity. Because if you look at this genealogy as a whole, it contains men and women, heroes and prostitutes, Jews and Gentiles, and more generally, sinners. And Jesus is going to be the Savior of all of them. Matthew is showing us that no matter what your past is, no matter what baggage you have in your life, Jesus is the Savior of everyone. Jesus brings hope. Now, a couple other interesting things to note here in this first chapter. Not all translations capture this, but for most of the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew uses the active voice. And that simply means, for example, Matthew will say something like, Abraham fathered Isaac. And then Isaac fathered Jacob. He says it in the active voice, very directly. But then when it gets to verse 16, he changes to a passive voice. It says, Jacob fathered Joseph. There's the active voice still. But then he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ So Matthew switches his formula here. He says Jesus was born or was begotten or was fathered. He doesn't say Joseph fathered Jesus. Why? Because he didn't. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So that's just another detail that can be easy to miss as we're reading through. Then you get to Matthew 1.23. And Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14, which says that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and will name him Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew word, and Matthew tells us it means God with us. Now, what's interesting here is that Matthew starts his gospel in chapter 1 by telling us about Emmanuel, God with us. Then he ends his gospel in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, which we're going to talk more about in a future episode, But Jesus ends the Great Commission by saying, I am with you always. So he starts his gospel with God is with us, God with us, and he ends the gospel by saying, I am with you always. And whenever a biblical writer starts and ends a book or a section of scripture with the same thing, it means he's really trying to emphasize it. So Matthew is emphasizing to us that God is always with us. And I want to come back to that thought here in just a minute, but real quick, just to summarize the the rest of our chapters, you're going to see the rest of Jesus's birth narrative here. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene looking a lot like Elijah from the Old Testament. And he calls Israel to repent in preparation for, for God's new work that he's doing. And surprisingly, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And real quick, Why was he baptized? Because Jesus didn't need to repent. He was sinless. But understand, he's identifying himself with us, with sinful humanity, and he's modeling perfect obedience for us. So Jesus is baptized, then he's empowered by the Spirit, and he resists the temptations of Satan, and he launches his public ministry in Galilee. And his miracles attract crowds from which he selects disciples. And he begins to equip his disciples with others listening, of course, through what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's chapters 5 through 7. This is the first of five longer sections of teaching in Matthew that we mentioned earlier. But this is the most well-known section of teaching. As I said, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And you'll see that he starts by telling what a true disciple looks like through what are known as the Beatitudes. He talks about the right use of God's law. He says he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he actually raises the standard in many cases. Then he he warns about the dangers of using religious practices to try to impress people because what Jesus cares about, what true religion is, is serving God, not impressing others. And he also warns about using Jesus' teachings to judge others because when we see the depth of Jesus' commands, when we see his standard, true disciples have an attitude of humility, not condescending judgment. Then he, he closes by challenging his disciples to choose the right path and to build on the right foundation. So that takes us through most of our reading for this week. But I want to go back to this idea of God with us, Emmanuel. Don't take this for granted. God came to be with us, to walk among us. You know, they they say in matters of love, you go yourself. If I want to tell my wife that I love her, I don't send somebody else, right? Because if I do, that's not going to go well. So when God wanted to show his love for us, he didn't just send his prophet He didn't just give us his word. He came himself. And that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. God came to be with us. And I think there's a discipleship lesson here for us as well. People often wonder, what does discipleship look like? Well, Jesus modeled it for us. He came to be with his disciples. He ate with them. He walked with them. He ministered with them. He laughed with them. Discipleship is life together. Discipleship is relationship. It's inviting somebody into your life and walking alongside of them. It's so much bigger than just a, a Bible study or reading a book. It's life on life. If we want to help people follow Christ in the everyday stuff of life, we need to be with them through the everyday stuff of life, not just an hour on a Sunday or during a group meeting. Now, we're going to come back to this idea of discipleship throughout the book of Matthew, but I want to challenge you to be thinking, who is one person that I can invest in? Who's one person that I can invest in through life-on-life discipleship? And I know this can sound intimidating. We're going to address that intimidation more later. But I want you right now just to be thinking about one person that you can potentially invest in and walk through life with. Jesus set the example for us by walking with us. So who can you walk through life with? And remember, through it all, Jesus is with you. Always.